This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. A couple of guys I got to get to because it's mostly the playoffs that make them Met killers. And they're both similar in that they turned into really good players after the Mets let them go and looks like major, major mistakes. Let's start with Justin Turner. Justin Turner and letting him go is just, it made no sense. You know, I, that, that one still bothers me. It actually, in a weird way, bothers me more than the Kent one because I understood why they traded Jeff Kent. Like, I, I never thought, not that I thought Turner would be a star, but I think with Kent, it was like, eh, it's over. It's not working here. They were getting a former all-star in Carlos Baerga. Like, I'd lie to you if I said I knew in the moment that was a stupid trade. I never thought it was going to work with Jeff Kent in New York. Now, Kent took Joe and I and straightened us out a few years later when he said, I love New York. I was made to play there. I didn't think that at the time. The, the reason the Turner thing pisses me off is that the Mets non-tendered him. They didn't trade him. They didn't get something back that didn't work out which is what happened with Kent. They non-tendered him. And there were rumors at the time that the reason for the non-tender were crazy. Like, oh, Justin Turner likes to have a beer once in a while. But what? What are you doing? And I never thought Turner would be a star, but I always thought of him as a really useful baseball player. And I didn't want to give him away. So no, I didn't think Justin Turner would turn into a star, but I thought, hey, that's a that's a winning ball player. That's a guy I want on my team. And to lose him for nothing always bothered me. His numbers in the regular season against the Mets are very good. Not absurd, they're very good. Uh, fifth highest OPS against any team, it's against the Mets. A little under 900, which is pretty damn good. 276, nine home runs, 25 RBIs, totally fine. But the reason he's on this list was the Mets won the NLDS in 2015. So when you win, you get to write the story. You get to remember what you want to remember. In that series, that son of a bitch would not make an out. And it's easy to forget that now because the Mets won the series and they moved on. But Justin Turner was 10 for 19 in those five games with four RBIs. And every time he came up, I got a stomachache. Every time he came up and was hitting line drives back up the middle, it was very tough to watch. So I put Turner on this list, not necessarily because of the regular season numbers, but because of how ridiculous he was in the postseason of 2015. And there's a very similar vein here. Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, who obviously went on and turned into one of the great offensive second basemen of all time, his regular season numbers against the Mets, identical to Justin Turner. 
played more games, but 282 average, a little bit higher, 14 home runs, 40 RBIs, 867 OPS. I wouldn't put him as a Met killer. I would put him as he represented what he became as a star player when facing the Mets. But here's why Jeff Kent's on the list. Justin Turner had one series against the Mets where they couldn't get him out. Do you recall that Jeff Kent did it twice? Now, again, the Mets won both series. So history's written by the winners. But in the 2000 National League Division Series against the San Francisco Giants, Jeff Kent and that beautiful mustache went six for 16. But that's nothing compared to what he did in 06. 06 NLDS, Mets sweep. So again, who cares? Jeff Kent was an absurd, wait for it, eight for 13. Eight for 13. He didn't make a goddamn out. Eight for 13 with a home run and two RBIs. So Jeff Kent and Justin Turner are on this list of former Met to become Met killers, not because of what happened in their career and not because of what they did in the regular season, but all of them put together had, let's add this up, 10 for 19, 8 for 13, 6 for 16. 24 hits, 21 for 47. (laughs) That's like a 440 batting average. That's stupid. That's so stupid. And again, you're talking about two guys where, again, I I maybe not Justin Turner so much. Again, you liked him. I wasn't so much. But Jeff Kent, like I I don't know many people that said I needed to see Jeff Kent leave. I, I was not one of those people that want him to go. So I wasn't like, oh, that makes so much sense. Let's get Carlos Baerga to come in here. I wasn't feeling that at all. So I'll tell you this real quick about that. When the trade came down in the years before baseball reference and the internet and all that, when it came out, I heard it, of course, on WFAN, I was ecstatic. I was like, oh, my God. And I loved Jeff Kent at the time, but my thought was, I can't believe the Mets just traded for Carlos Baerga. I can't believe they just traded for this three-time All-Star. This is unbelievable. This guy's a monster. This guy's a machine. I remember Francesa always used to say, is a hit machine. Oh, that's what he is. He's a hit machine. He's a hit machine. So they make the trade. I'm really excited. And my dad and I run to Baseball Weekly because we used to get the Baseball Weekly magazine. And we open it up to see what his numbers look like. You know, because again, it's such a different world. We're not watching these games on the MLB package. We get baseball weekly once a week. We could see the statistics. And so in my mind, I am so excited, Pete. 12-year-old Evan. Oh, my God. We got Carlos Baerga. He's an all-star. He's a hit machine. And we race open and we open up baseball weekly. And I'll never forget when I saw his stats. I said, Dad, what the hell is this? I open it up and Bayerga is hitting 267 <laughs> with like a 300 on base with 10 home runs, 55 RBIs, like very pedestrian. This is a guy who drove in a hundred runs. This is a guy who has a Cleveland Indian at the time was a 300 hitter. And I'm looking at these numbers saying, what's this? <laughs> and that's how different, you know, our information was back then. You know, we're not able to watch the games all the time. The only stats we get is looking at the newspaper. And I remember getting a little bit of a stomach ache saying, oh, what's, what are we doing? I thought, I thought this guy was good. Backfired already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, 
dude, it's sort it's sort of crazy to think that that's how it worked, and it wasn't. That's just the way it was, and yeah, he kind of knew right away. Maybe this guy isn't the same, and, and clearly it led to his demise. He was only twenty seven years old, but something was up, and the Cleveland Indians knew it at the time. It's part of why they traded him. Well, ho- hopefully it's not an ankle issue. Well, hopefully it wasn't an ankle issue. Put that way. <laughs> I think it was being a fat ass issue. I think that was the problem. <laughs> uh, let me get to a couple of pitchers because uh, one guy kind of fits the whole Justin Turner, Jeff Kent thing a little bit before our time, but it definitely deserves credit. And that's Mike Scott. Mike Scott was a Met and he was a crappy Met. Mike Scott as a New York Met was 14 and 27 with a 4.64 ERA. And the Mets got rid of him, and he became a Houston Astro and didn't kill the Mets in the regular season. His career numbers against the Mets are very, very pedestrian. But Mike Scott in 1986 became a monster. He blossomed into a really good pitcher, a top-notch pitcher in Major League Baseball. We now know he was probably scuffing the ball. Maybe at the time we knew he was scuffing the ball. But the reason Mike Scott makes this list is, of course, the National League Championship Series of 1986, in which he made two starts against the Mets. And very close to making a third. Part of the drama of game six of the NLCS in 86 was the prospect of facing Mike Scott for a third time. Because in the two starts Mike Scott made against his former team in the NLCS, he pitched 18 innings, two starts, 18 innings. He allowed one run. He struck out 19 guys and walked one. He was 2-0 and with a 0.50 ERA. He was the definition of a Met killer come postseason time. And I guess what's different about the Justin Turner and the um, uh, Jeff Kent thing is that when you think back to the 86 NLCS, you think of Mike Scott if you're a Met fan. It's easy to forget about Justin Turner. It's easy to forget about Jeff Kent. Mike Scott was the reason why the Astros had a chance. And let's not forget this. Mike Scott did something in 1986 that was remarkable besides winning the Cy Young besides pitching a no-hitter that clinched the Astros, the National League West. Mike Scott was so dominant in that NLCS that no Met won the NLCS MVP. It was Mike Scott who won the NLCS MVP, even though they lost in six because, well, he made two starts and he pitched 18 innings and allowed one run. That is, look, his career is what it is. He really only had that one dominant season he had some other good years don't get me wrong but that was the dominant season but to do it against the Mets and to do it that dominantly against the Mets he's the pitcher he's the guy you put at the top of the list but there are a couple of other guys pitching wise that should not be surprises Tom Seaver killed the Mets and I don't know if Met fans of an older generation think of him that way they think of Tom Seaver as the franchise as one of the greatest men of all time but Tom Seaver made 11 starts against the Mets And he pitched to a 2.28 ERA, which even for Seaver, as great as he was, is incredibly low. In fact, that's the third lowest ERA he had against any team. Not a surprise. Seaver was pissed off. And the Mets were bad. So you combine those two things, you get great numbers. Another guy who's a legend, Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan made 20 starts against his former team, the New York Mets. And he pitched to a 2.47 ERA, well below his career ERA mark, and that was the fourth lowest in his career. Another guy who was great against the Mets as a reliever was Tug McGraw, now with the Philadelphia Phillies. He pitched to a 2-3-9 ERA against the Mets. 
But I got one that may surprise you. And we jump back to our era so we may remember it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Do you remember how dominant, and I'll give you the numbers to back this up, Armando Benitez was against the Mets after he joined the Florida Marlins? He, I mean, you think he killed us when he was the Met closer. When he was closing out games, he was ridiculous. Now, eventually the Mets got to him. So what I did is I pulled his first 15 appearances against the Mets. Because after that, the Mets touched him up a little bit. No doubt about it. But in his first 15 appearances, do you remember this at all? How good Benitez was? Or does, he, does that fade away a little bit? I, I think the Marlins maybe. I mean, I see. I remember him more of like uh, with the Yankees and stuff like that. He was with the Yankees the Orioles. five minutes. Well, and the Orioles too, though. I mean, yeah. I remember, that was before, I, though. That was yes, before. Yeah. I do, so pro- I know a little I remember a little bit about the Marlins, but I don't remember him killing us so much. So so he did. I think a part of why it may be easy to forget is the Mets weren't good. Like this was not a peak Met team. It was 04, it was 05, and it was very briefly in 06 before the Mets finally got to him. And I'll touch on that in a second. So in 2004, he made 12 appearances against the Mets. He pitched 13 and a third innings, allowed one run had 10 save opportunities in one year, which is a very high number, 10 save opportunities. He was 10 for 10, 10 for 10, right off the top. In 2005, he only made two appearances against the Mets. He was two for two. In 2006, his first appearance against the Mets, he made a save. So he was 13 for 13 and allowed one run in 16 innings against the Mets. And it was deeply frustrating. I do vaguely remember a little bit of this. Because we wanted to kill him. We wanted to beat him. Now, this, this son of a bitch blew so many big games for us, and here we have a chance to stick it to him, and we never did. And when we finally did, and I was on the air that night. I was doing overnights back in the day in 2006, and it was such a huge topic. Armando Benitez gave up a game-tying home run to Lasting's Millage. And so we finally got to him. Uh, I was at the game. I was pumped up. It was like a drive to left field. I remember going nuts. Like, yeah, we, we got Benitez. Yeah, we finally got to him. Tied the game. Did not give the Mets the lead. Lasting's millage in running out to left field or right field was high-fiving the fans. Right field. Definitely right field. Right field? Were you there? Were you one of them? No, but I remember, dude, that home run will go down a legacy because so many people hated that moment of Lasting's millage. I'll never forget it. But the reason they hate it is because the Mets lost. Like, think about it. Millich hit a home run. He celebrated with the crowd. And it became a thing because they lost. If the Mets had won, everybody would love it. Sports is written by winners and losers. Kayvon Thibodeau did whatever you want to call it, inappropriate or great, a snow angel next to a broken down Nick Foles. If the Giants lose that game, Kayvon Thibodeau is ripped to shreds by every Giant fan. 
You win. You win by a lot. No problem. History is written by the winners. And I remember saying that that night on the fan. It's one of the overnight shows I, I really vividly remember, which was, guys, if they win the game, you're loving it. And instead, ah, this kid, he doesn't get it. What's he doing? High-fiving people. Can you believe this? Crazy, crazy, crazy. But it was against Benitez, and the Mets lost the game. And it was not the Marlins at the time. I think it was with the Giants by this point. It was with San Francisco, if memory serves correct. 2006 was, yeah, definitely San Francisco. And I forget how they lost the game. I I don't remember who gave it up. Uh, I could go back to my 2006 scorecard, but I'm not going to. Um, But that was it. Because after that, the Mets finally got to Benitez. But yeah, for his first uh, 15 appearances against the Mets, he was 13 for 13 in saves. How crazy is that? That's disgusting. I mean, that really is. And and curious, by the way, just to think back, Lacey's Millage, us killing him for doing that. I imagine what we would say, those people would say about uh, Edwin Diaz doing the uh, the trumpet as he walked in. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Think about that. Like, Think how things have changed in the past 20 years almost. I think a lot has changed, but the constant is winning. When you win, you get away with everything. When you lose, you're held accountable for everything. Uh, if the Giants beat the Packers in 2016 after appearing on the Love Boat, everybody loves the Love Boat. You know what I mean? Like things are just treated differently based on the results uh, of games. You know, Tony Romo going to Cabo, they lost. That's what made it a big deal. And so, on a much smaller scale, the fact the Mets had lost that game made the Millage high fives a bad thing. So here are the guys. There are four guys that came up with that killed the Mets before they got here, and. One of them, I, I'll get out of the way because he's an all-time great player. So, of course, he killed the Mets. He probably killed everybody. And that's the great Willie Mays. Willie Mays against the Mets in 146 games, hit 39 home runs, drove in 106 runs. Um, eighth most home runs against any team was against the Mets. But what's impressive about that is he played less games um, than everybody ahead. You know what I mean? So, like, his performance against the Mets was incredibly high. He hit more home runs in a fewer amount of games than all the teams he hit more home runs against. And obviously, Willie joined the Mets late in his career. He had his number retired finally. Uh, it doesn't really count, but I wanted to give him some credit. The other guy who was a Met killer was Gary Sheffield. And eventually, he joined the Mets, even though many of us forget that. He hit his 500th home run with the Mets. Gary Sheffield in 131 games hit 322 with 30 home runs and 84 RBIs. The weirdest one is Joe Torrey. Now, Joe Torrey is not a Hall of Fame baseball player. He eventually got in the Hall of Fame, and he clearly deserves it. As a baseball player, he was very good, was short of the Hall of Fame. But against the Mets, he hit 316 in 200 games with 30 home runs and 117 RBIs. Absolute Met killer. But the other guy, this guy was such a Met killer. And it took the Mets a while before they finally beat him. And I remember Shea Stadium, he was with the Expos at the time. They finally got to him. And that was, of course, the great Pedro Martinez. Pedro Martinez against the Mets. And a lot of this is before he was Pedro Pedro. Because remember, a lot of Pedro's dominance, most of his dominance, was with the Red Sox, where he would face the Mets sparingly in interleague play. The Mets faced Pedro before he became Pedro. 12-3. and Two two one ERA, incredible numbers against the Mets. All time pitching Met killer, and then obviously would later join the team and 
we could have our debates about what kind of man he was. I already gave my opinion on the worst free agent podcast that we did. But those are the four guys that jump out at me as guys that killed the Mets before they got here. I'm sure that we miss somebody. So if we did, you can, of course, email B at gmail.com. But these are Met killers comprised of former New York Mets. And when we do this podcast in 10 years, again, Dom Smith may be the president of it. Who the hell knows what he's going to do with the Washington Nationals? But it's funny, when he signed with the Nationals, we all thought the same thing. Oh, crap. This guy's going to kill us. <laughs> it goes through all of our minds. Oh, no, no no doubt. And I got killed right away. People like, oh, no, it's not going to happen. But you talk about, we talked about Dom Smith for a long time about how there was so much potential. He needed everyday play. He was never going to get it here with the Mets. Pete Alonso outshined him, and rightfully so. He's going to get chances to play almost every day. Now, listen, the good thing is they only play us 13 times this year rather than like 19. So I guess it won't be as bad. <laughs> yeah. And look, let it be a lesson of the 2006 NLDS and 2015 NLDS. A guy can kill you, but you can still beat them. You know, a guy could put up great numbers. I think what made the Murphy thing so difficult was Murphy wasn't just putting up huge numbers. The Mets weren't beating the Nationals, who won the division that year. And it felt like the difference between winning the division and not winning the division. But what we need to be, I guess, okay with with Dom is sort of what I mentioned earlier about Darno when we started this. It was time. It wasn't going to work here. Sometimes things don't work. Uh, so you just have to move on. And that's the way I look at it with Dom Smith. But there have been a lot of guys over the years, I mentioned Castile earlier, where you think they're going to kill you, and then they don't actually come back and kill you. So we'll see how the whole thing works out. We'll continue to keep an eye on the Carlos Correa thing. Hopefully there'll be a podcast soon in which we officially declare Carlos Correa a New York Met. Uh, and a couple of other things we'll get to in the next few weeks. We'll have a more intricate debate on Beltron. Uh, it has to happen. Beltron's eligible for the Hall of Fame. I don't think he's going to get in this time, but I do think Beltron is eventually going to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And it's complicated for us because he should go in as a Met. And I don't know how disputable that is, but then that leads to further questions about how we handle it as Met fans. Does he get his number retired? Do we bring him back into the family? Are Met fans able to accept Carlos Beltran? We'll do that coming up in the next few weeks on the Rico. We'll take a look at that Hall of Fame bout and how those guys did against the Mets and their histories with the Mets. Uh, so we certainly have a lot to do as well as this offseason continuing. And we march closer and closer to spring training, my favorite time of year. I didn't tell Pete. We're going to do a podcast after every spring training game analyzing all nine innings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dude, I was about to say, I don't even know where to start or end. <laughs> My love of spring training has evolved over the years. And we'll get to that as we get closer to it. I used to just eat it up every inning, scoring games. And as time has gone on, uh, I still love it, but not to the level that, let's say, 15-year-old Evan loved it. Are you going to be at any spring training games? Probably not. That That's also something. You know, I used to go every single year. I used to go to four or five games every single year, spend some time down there. It is much more challenging now with a wife and kids. Like vacation time is very special, and I cannot use it at Port St. Lucie, Florida. You can't make it a work thing, though? 
go out for oh, a week, that go to Port St. Lucie, let's see, you know, do so a the, games here and there. The work aspect of it, it doesn't work because we're on the air during games. So I did that in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And I remember when I got back, I said, I wasn't at spring training. Like, yeah, I interviewed players and we did some fun shows. We're on the air during game. Like, I'm not watching the games. We're doing a radio show. So the work aspect of it is very, very different. That's for sure. Uh, either way, we'll get closer to spring training and we'll talk about it. Lots of spring training stories. You can email the pod, the Rico B at gmail.com. Obviously, tweet at Pete or tweet at me. And you can check off out with Tiki and Tierney during the week. Me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. We appreciate you listening and reviewing and commenting on the Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>